0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Gathering Ground. I'm Mary Morton, your host and president of Morton Group LLC, a Chicago-based national consulting firm. Something I often discuss with the leaders I coach as a part of our work at Morton Group is executive isolation, an all too common occurrence. In fact, according to a survey administered by Compass Point and the Myers Foundation, 70% of the 3,000 nonprofit executives surveyed reported feelings of isolation, with 67% anticipating an exit in five years or less. It's no wonder why with collaboration and community being at the top of mind in several professional sectors, that co-leadership is something we're seeing more often. From tech companies to foundations to nonprofits, pairs and even trios of people are leading organizations together. The ability to share some of the tangible and emotional work of being an executive director or CEO can be invaluable not to mention presenting an opportunity to create a more realistic division of labor at the top level. However, teams making this transition must remember that the same pitfalls exist as do with any business relationship, power struggles, unclear responsibilities, and ineffective communication to name a few. When it's done thoughtfully and intentionally, transitioning into a co-leadership model can be incredibly successful as evidenced by today's guest. Today on Gathering Ground, I am thrilled to welcome leaders from three very different, very distinct organizations whose co-leadership models have helped their organizations become even stronger. So please welcome to Gathering Ground, Sean Thomas Breitfeld, who is co-director of the Building Movement Project, Kate Roosevelt and Julia McGuire, co-presidents of Campbell and Company, and Jenny Arwadi and Raul Botello, co-executive directors of Communities United, Welcome to Gathering Ground, everyone. So happy you're here. So we are going to start, as we do with Gathering Ground, by just getting a little bit of your background uh, before we start to talk about some of your professional life. How did you get to your organizations? Um, Just a little bit about your story so that our listeners have some context. So Sean, let's start with you. And we wanna mention at the outset that your co-director, Frances Kun Reuter could not be with us today, but we are wishing her well and hoping that she's staying warm on the East Coast. So welcome back. This is Sean's third appearance on Gathering Ground. So um, some of our listeners are very familiar with his work. Sean, tell us a little bit about how you got to the Building Movement Project.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me again. Great to connect. I often say that part of my path is the fact that I'm a pastor's kid. In fact, both of my parents are ministers. Um, So I had a stint in, well, I studied social work in college, and I had a stint in direct services, and I had a stint as a policy analyst, and I had a stint as an organizer. Um, So, you know, I just was moving around the sector and then had the opportunity to land at the Building Movement Project as co-director where I have been for uh, now going on nine years. Time flies. It does. <laughs> Thank you so much. Jenny,
0: uh, let's hear from you and Raul. How did you get to your current roles at Communities United?
2: Great, thanks so much, Mary. Um, and so everyone, I'm Jenny Arwadi, co-director with Communities United uh, She, Her, Hers. and it's so interesting that you started with the theme of isolation because that's actually what brought me into this work. So um, growing up, I grew up in New York city. My father was an immigrant, a cab driver, a fruit vendor um, on the streets of New York. And um, as a child, just experiencing lots of injustice as a family, it always felt very isolating Um, and being on our own. It just felt like, you know, you just have to accept the circumstances that are dealt to you. And so um, when I came into community organizing after graduating from Princeton, you know, I was really centered on the role of communities, right, Um, and charting our own course for change. And it's the exact opposite of isolation, right? You get to knock on doors, co-create with people you've never met. So I fell in love with it from the beginning and have been there 20 years um, with Raul, who I'll pass it to. Okay, Raul, take it away.
3: (laughs) Thank you, Mary, for this invite.
2: Yeah, I, I,
3: you know, my journey began in a small town in Mexico. Um, My parents, um, my dad was a migrant worker, and he had this dream of bringing all his kids and eventually raised enough money to pull together and, you know, bring us. And for a long time, I did not realize why I ended up in organizing. Um, I used to work corporate while working in college. And People would ask me, "How did you end up here?" And I would always point to maybe a pastor talked to me about liberation theology. I couldn't put pinpoint my Catholic values. I really couldn't point to what I. I think that's what I said at that at that time. Um, about seven years ago, I we we switched our model, and you know, thanks to you, uh, we switched our name and. Part of that journey was how do we how do folks tell their narrative? And as I explore that, I realized that part of the reason that I ended up in this unlikely position of going back when I told my mom that I was leaving corporate and coming to do a uh, 18000 dollars you know paid job, she was like, Are you, we came to this country to what? <laughs> um, but I think my separate I got separated at the border with my mom. And I never told that story because my job as an organizer was to always uncover the stories of others. But the more I explore that um, through that name, you know, when we changed our name from community, um, Albany Park to Communities United, we started talking about how did folks in the community tell a narrative that is not just about survivorship, but empowerment. And that's kind of when I started exploring of like, why did I end it up here? And I realized that it was that separation at the border for a couple of years that I didn't, my mom made it. I did not make it. So I had to be uh, waiting in Mexico for a couple of years before I uh, got reunited with her.
0: All right. Thank you. Well, I, I mean, you know, we worked together for several years. I didn't know that was part of your story. Thank you. And Kate, tell us about your journey.
4: Thank you, Mary. Uh, and thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this conversation today with you and Sean and Raul and Jenny. I'm Kate Roosevelt. And, uh, My journey really starts at home and being raised uh, in a household that had a very strong ethic around service and engaging with the community. I can remember, like it was yesterday, my mom sitting at the kitchen table after dinner making uh, calls to raise money for Planned Parenthood, and uh, my dad working uh, in an environmental organization focused on uh, ocean conservation, which back in the 70s was, you know, Something that we were just beginning to think and talk about. Uh, Fast forward to uh, my early 20s, I moved to Seattle, Washington, and entered a Master of Public Administration program. And for the first time, really came to understand that I could put my values to work and actually do values informed work in the nonprofit sector. Uh, And that was a real epiphany for me. And I went to work first at the University of Washington in a leadership and management training program and then worked in the environmental sector. And as with many things in life, I found the consulting uh, world through relationships and a friend who referred me to uh, the first firm that I worked with in Seattle called Collins Group that then became a part of Campbell and Company uh, eight years ago. So I I started uh, my consulting journey almost 22 years ago, and I really have never looked back. And it's just been an amazing opportunity to walk alongside people as they are looking to do big, hard things in the world and ultimately to make the world a more just and, and equitable place. So it's been a huge privilege and honor to, to do this work.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. And Julia, let's hear your story.
5: Thank you. So um, I, I started in fundraising, actually, in uh, college when I was uh, in Mexico, working uh, for a school called El, El Educativo, Centro Educativo Ixleoloto. And uh, I did my first fundraising uh, event there by organizing a basketball game and ha- charging a fee for people to enter. And we raised $2,000 in U.S. dollars and got electricity and running water um, for the school. And I, that was the bug that I got, was being able to bring people together, have fun, and make a difference. Um, So when I finished college, I started at Rotary International, helped with the Polio Plus program for a few years. I went back to my alma mater, Loyola University, Chicago. I went to Ronald McDonald House Charities Global. And then I went to um, Boys and Girls Clubs of America. Um, Campbell and Company had been our consultant at Ronald McDonald House Charities Global. And when I was ready to make a move again, they asked if I'd come uh, and work for them. So that was 21 years ago. And I'm still there loving the difference uh, that we can make loving the people that I work with both as colleagues and the clients um, that I get to work with and uh, the best part is is those from those first days at Rotary International uh, two of the people I worked with then have been clients in the last two years Uh, so I keep relationships for a long time Um, and I was lucky enough uh, when we moved to California for my husband's job to continue to work for Campbell and Company there and I was lucky enough uh, to come back uh, as we started looking at succession planning and uh, return to Chicago in my hometown and, and, and continue to work for the same company.
0: Wow, what great stories you all have. And I love knowing that we went to the same college. Um, that's, that's wonderful. Um, so that's, that's very helpful to set some context for your background. And now we want to hear a little bit about your organization. So we intentionally really wanted to have a for-profit organization like Morton Group uh, does consulting, Uh, fundraising and, you know, strategic um, planning, those kinds of things. And then we also wanted to have nonprofits. And also, you know, while Building Movement Project is a nonprofit, I think of it often as kind of a think tank in many ways. I mean, you do research, you really do very important research that we've used many times. So why don't you start, Sean, by just giving our listeners a little bit of what you're doing. Uh, We will wait to talk about what's coming down the road, but just give people some context for your work. And, and then we'll move into talking about uh, the co-leadership model.
1: Sure, so BMP is a national project that focuses on supporting, but also pushing the nonprofit sector to be more focused on progressive social change, social justice issues and practices. And so uh, we do do a, a lot of research, um, particularly right now, a lot of our research for the last several years has focused on issues of race and leadership in the sector, but we also, Uh, have done research and documentation around uh, movement building and how organizations collaborate, work together to have more impact um, instead of being stuck in organizational or issue silos. And we also look at how uh, direct service organizations can do social change, social justice work uh, by lifting up and listening to the voice of their constituents and community. So a lot of that work is a mix of listening to folks on the ground, identifying lessons and practices that work and doing training and documentation to make the case to the field uh, to move in these uh, more progressive directions. Wonderful.
0: And Julia, can you just give us the um, sort of elevator pitch on Campbell and
5: Company? Yes, we are a consulting firm to not-for-profits and we have been around uh, for uh, 40 plus years. Uh, based in Chicago. Now, uh, since we couldn't beat Collins Group in the Northwest, we decided to uh, merge with Collins Group and collaborate in that way. Um, But we uh, we are an employee-owned organization. So we're an ESOP, um, which means everyone in our firm is an owner in our firm, which is really important to the work that we do. Um, We are across the country. We have people in Boston, DC, Seattle, Chicago, um, LA. Uh, as well as a few other folks scattered, given the, the way we can all work remotely uh, today. We have four major service lines. We work on fundraising that includes strategic planning, communications, um, strategic information services, or data, uh, the data magic. And then we also have executive search.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And Raul, let's hear a little bit about what Communities United is doing.
3: So, Communities United is a grassroots um, organization that, you know, um, is led by survivors um, in in communities in five communities in Chicago, and we work on. Uh, we, we're known for working with young people and youth organizing, um, and the movement to you know remove police from schools is one of the issues that we, we've been tackling out for the past you know twelve years, and we've had some major successes over the last couple of years. Um, but we also look at you know. Uh, entrenched uh, structural racism within like, our communities and, and um, around policy and research. So we have a lot of partners with, right now, one of our big partnerships is with Lurie Children's Hospital and how do we move big institutions uh, like hospitals to learn from community organizations in our, how we engage directly um, to kind of move the needle uh, collectively. Um, and so that's kind of who we are. Um, we're a membership-based organization. Um, and, um, it's super exciting because during this time, you know, being on the ground is really, really empowering, um, for our members and our, our staff as well.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yes. Lots of successes, lots of legislation, lots of movement work, um, that really was not just a moment, but, you know, continued on, which has been wonderful to see in in Chicago. Jenny, um, we're going to just talk a little bit about the pandemic, which we're still in. What is one thing you've learned about yourself as we've navigated these waters?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, one thing I think I've learned about myself is just what it really takes to sustain balance in my life over time. Because we think that, you know, over the years, I've had many great moments of balance, (laughs) to your point, but um, sustaining that is really challenging. And Um, The pandemic, I mean, it hit us all so hard um, on top of all of the uprisings and um, the continued police violence and just the really horrendous conditions um, our communities have been facing. So really out of mere survival um, and, you know, um, just having to really have that wake up call about how to even in the most intense conditions to be able to keep balanced and to be able to you know, continue to bring joy on a daily basis, right? Even in the, in the toughest circumstances. And that's been important for our team at Communities United as well.
0: Absolutely. Continuing to find joy. Absolutely. And Kate, what have you learned or what's become clear during this time?
4: Oh boy, Mary, I've learned a lot about myself. And, and I think also about the role that I play as a consultant Uh, In the world, either perpetuating systems that have held people back for for many, many decades and centuries or using philanthropy for good. And I think one of my major learnings, I I just think of it almost as like a switch that flipped in my brain during the summer of 2020 following the murder of George Floyd was moving my mindset from using philanthropy as a force for good (laughs) to examining the structures that exist within philanthropy that are actually preventing more positive change from happening. And that, you know, is kind of a subtle thing, but was a kind of a profound moment for me to sort of step back and say, how do I actually help people shift the way that they engage with philanthropy and use philanthropy to make positive change in the world and to, you know, advance equity and justice for all sorts of people that our clients work with, whether they're trying to get fed, trying to get housed, trying to participate in the arts, trying to figure out how to rescue their frontline community that has been uh, poisoned uh, by, you know, environmental, uh, terrible environmental injustices. So that was a, that was a big one for me, subtle, but really kind of big. And I think it's, informing how we're thinking about our our business and our leadership going forward and really the obligation that I think we feel we have to be consultants that are asking really hard questions alongside our clients and and helping to develop solutions.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Sean, what about you? I'm not sure. Um, (laughs) You know, I think that it's been a very unsettling few years and I would like to sort of be confident about having learned new things about myself or new skills. And really what I've just done is like, nose to the grindstone and just hustled, you know? Um, So, you know, I think in part in response to some of the, what I think others were sharing about how difficult this time has been for our communities and for organizations, And as a leader of an organization that's sort of in that intermediary space, the feeling of responsibility to um, be in solidarity and in service of organizations that were certainly struggling much more than BMP was. Um, And, you know, I think that the pandemic and, you know, I think the response to, you know, police violence and the uprisings was also just saddening. I, I I don't know how else to describe, you know, I think that there's just a level of fatigue and sadness uh, that is also, I think, crept in. So I wish I had a more uplifting response about it's what I've since January 2020. But yes,
0: yeah, it's the reality. I mean, most of us thought when we, you know, had to shelter in place in March, that it was going to be for a couple of weeks, right? It was just going to be for a couple of weeks. And then We'll get back to normal, right? And we really don't want to go back to normal um, because normal was not good for so many uh, of us and so many the you know so many of us. Period. I will say, Julia, what comes to mind for
2: you?
5: You know, I, it, uh, prioritization, and I, I really, Jenny, what you said about balance is really important. It's, it's interesting that my daughter, who was twelve when that all started, and is now. 14 has uh has said to me she misses that time we had together when everything was slower and we were home when we thought it was just a couple weeks. Um and so trying to to, to take that piece of, of that and remembering those moments and not just get caught up and okay, let's start moving fast again as as the doors open and the and and, and face-to-face visits and all of that comes. Are we going to continue to be thoughtful and take our time and take care of the balance that that is really important and we've advocated for it as leaders I think um in our firm um we've really thought about ensuring our 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 staff had flexibility took care of themselves but we have to model that as well and um it was about the pandemic it was about the feelings of uh, the, the, the uprisings, the, the protests, uh, the George Floyd murder, the AAPI hate that occurred and making sure that our, our, our colleagues um, who were mo- more deeply impacted by that um, knew they were that they had support for whatever they needed during that time and whatever time they needed to maybe step away or slow down. So we're just, I want to make sure we don't lose that moving forward.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Great. rule. All-
0: what have you learned or what did you come to understand
5: yeah um
3: no just listening to Julian, I remember I remembered um my our daughter you know we, as we're preparing I was like you know these are the things that you have to do you know we're in a in a critical moment here in the country but all over the world and how we're connected to each other and she just came to us and said and I said well what would you like to do when you grow up and she goes Definitely don't want to do what you guys are doing. You guys have worked way too hard. Um, and you know, it was it was it was kind of eye-opening, but you know, this addiction to the the pace at which we live and we work, and to you know, that is really what I learned in that we kind of are in a system that we're in it, that someone else is gonna teach us how to be better human beings in terms of our own ethics of what we value and I realized that you know in this moment it really took folks that had nothing to show how they're stepping up in terms of bringing food to our tables um, and so for me I think just learned about like we have to lead in modeling what is healthy working environments um, is the first and the second thing is that I learned is like I've always known, you know, when we went through the name change, I've always known that narrative change, narrative, you know, change and narrative um, movement is important. But during this time, I it became so crystal clear that the power that narrative change has to really compete against other forms of change is so crucial and. Um, in, in such that someone's going to lead that, and if we don't lead that, then someone you know that other other narratives are going to dominate and you know, overstep all the change that we want to um, ha, you know have happen. So those are the two things that became crystal clear, both one on the home life and one on the public life.
0: Thank you so much. Um, agree with all of that. So all of you are involved in co leadership models, and we want to talk about. How that came to be, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with uh, Julia and Kate because this is new for Campbell and Company. You moved to a co leadership model last year. What led you to think this might be the way to go as opposed to a single leader model? And who would like to start? Kate, you want to start?
4: I'd be happy to start. Um, and yes, Mary, these are early days. Uh, mm-hmm. We're what Julia and I think our four months of this. Uh, this partnership that we are crystallizing. I think one of the things that has made this work so well for us is that we had eight years of experience working together, building trust, already, you know, navigating some um, difficult moments in our business, our personal lives, um, you know, the communities in which we live, the people with which we work. And for us, you know, the, the journey really started, believe it or not, before the pandemic in 2019, we started to engage with our then president and CEO in a discussion around uh, succession planning and just beginning to imagine what it would look like to put, um, you know, a process into place that would make more room at the table for more people in the firm to help to lead and and direct uh, the firm going forward. Well, needless to say in the spring of 2020, that exercise was uh, put on hold (laughs) and we kind of moved into survival mode um, as a professional services firm working with nonprofit organizations. Many of our clients were um, really uh, terribly affected by the pandemic um, and in all sorts of ways. And it wasn't until uh, just about a year ago that we resumed the discussions and the planning and arrived at a, um, at least an initial idea that, yes, we wanted to put a leadership succession plan into place. And we engaged with uh, a wonderful consultant who helped us to explore a variety of models. And he had worked with a couple of other family businesses and small businesses Navigating uh, similar transitions and said, you know, you don't hear a lot about this, but I've seen co-presidency models work really well with people that have very complementary skills and strengths and areas of interest that have, you know, a business that is really rooted in this notion of sort of shared leadership and inclusive leadership. And with people that are, um, you know, looking to make a difference and recognizing that there's more that they can do together than they can actually do alone. And, you know, I scoured the Internet and looked for all sorts of Harvard Business Review articles. There's nothing, hardly anything that's out there. (laughs) Maybe a book will come out of this session, Mary, who knows. But there's not a lot that's been really written uh you know or researched about these models because they're you know they're still i think considered non-traditional and fairly experimental so that's the that's the long story that got us to september of last year when uh we crystallized this and there was a lot of work that went into it in terms one of the things we had to do and you mentioned this earlier was to get really clear about how we were going to um divide and define our roles not only so that we wouldn't get in each other's way, but that it was really clear to our team sort of, you know, who's responsible, who's accountable, uh, who's leading the charge. And, you know, we can talk more about that if if you wish. But um, once we kind of pulled the curtain back and shared shared the news with the team, um, we just kept going. And it's been um, a pretty wonderful first uh, couple of months and has also set into motion a whole bunch of other sort of changes and new ways of thinking across the firm. I, I talk with Julie and I talk about it as sort of like this opening up of possibility, ideas, more people feeling like they have the ability to influence the direction of our firm and the kinds of services that we're going to provide and the people that we're going to work with uh, and just a lot more seats at the table for people to um, be working in partnership with us to to uh, make make the path forward.
0: Wonderful. And Julia, were you on board with this idea? Did you immediately think yes, this could work? Did it make sense to you?
5: I don't think either Kate or I were. Was it was an immediate yes for either of us when the consultant brought it up to us? So it was like, wait, wait, what? Um, but uh, you know, Kate and I are both willing to experiment and look at things a different way. Um, what I like uh, and is really important is that Kate and I had, we knew we had shared values. We knew we had a shared vision for where we wanted to go. Now, whether we wanted to go, uh, you know, uh, on the back roads or on the highway is where we have really good, uh, we, I, we call it vigorous fellowship, um, right, around that. Um, but, but so how we get there, we love to discuss and learn from each other. But that shared vision, that, that the, the trust, just knowing that we have each other's back and that we wanted to get to the same place, we said, eh, let's give it a shot. Let's see what this looks like. And um, as Kate said, it, it's, been, it's been really exciting. And having eight years of working together in very similar roles um, and supporting each other in those roles, because we come at them um, from different perspectives has been really, really powerful. So it's, it's, it's been exciting, but it was not a natural, like, oh, that's a great idea kind of moment.
2: Yeah.
0: I think this is the moment, though. I think certainly for myself, uh, as a result of being in the pandemic, just thinking about um, ideas and, and, and possibilities that maybe you thought, eh, should we try this? And kind of thinking, why not? Right? Why not? Right. Sean, you came to Building Movement Project, and Francis was already the director. How did you make that turn to uh, becoming co-directors?
1: yeah so um, Francis founded BMP about 20 years ago and um, you know had built the organization over that the organization's first decade and I think because BMP sort of comes out of and is in service to social change organizations the idea of shared leadership was not maybe as... Challenging or new. Um, I think that there had been several uh, community organizing groups that had embraced a shared leadership model, in part in uh, response to both, you know, just sort of core organizational values, but also analysis of effectiveness as an organization being able to be nimble, move quickly, uh, make campaign decisions, those sorts of things. And so, actually, before Francis and I even started talking about me joining as co director. BMP had done research on shared leadership and produced a report uh, over a decade ago called Structuring Leadership that was about really digging into both uh, alternative models for distributing power, but also alternative models for decision-making in organizational contexts. And most of the interviews for that report were with organizing groups. But I had been a part of the advisory board of BMP and I had known Francis for years, so there's a similar like long standing relationship uh, that I think you heard from uh, Kate and Julia so there's a lot of trust. We understood in what, what ways our experiences would be complementary, um, And, you know, I think that that really was what made it both possible. Um, but also I think part of what made Frances think, oh, let me ask Sean. Like I don't think that she was, I don't think she would have put out a job description looking for a co-director. Um, I think that she saw an opportunity to bring me into the organization in a different way than I had been involved as a member of the board.
0: Okay. That's um, very interesting that you talk about some of the models being an organizing. Hmm. We're going to talk to a group now, to a couple of folks who are organizers and lead an organizing group, and and t- turns out they have a long-standing relationship. So uh, I'm going to come to uh, Jenny and Raúl. You know, Raúl, when you were talking, you mentioned our daughter, and uh, Jenny, going to start with you. Uh, tell us about how Communities United really was the Foundation for the co leadership, but give us some context for your relationship overall.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, Raul and I um, met, um, I think we started at our organization about two weeks apart in 2001, it would have been. And it was right when the organization um, was first starting. And, you know, we had rented, we got free space in an old convent building. Everyone had their own office, but Raul and I were the only ones who were put in the same office to share and um, we worked really well together and we ended up over time actually getting married, which I think Mary's <laughs> alluding to. Um, so I think for us, it's just been um, kind of a beautiful, challenging, but beautiful journey, right? Over the last 20 years, the issues that we work around are always you know, challenging, but our board comes from the community, they're active leaders, community grassroots leaders who are leading the work. And I think they saw how well we work together um, because we had been organizing together for a number of years before the founding director left. So for our organization, just like um, Sean mentioned, and in a community organizing context, the, the notion of co-leadership is a pretty natural one um, because we're always looking for how we can co-create with someone else, right? And Our greatest joy comes in fostering the leadership of others um, in our communities and the young people we work with. So that's kind of where it began, and it's worked well over the past now, I guess, sixteen years or so.
0: Ro, do you want to add to that? Because you also started, you became you. When did you take on the co leadership model? Because for a while you were executive director, associate director. When did you move to the co leadership model?
3: We moved into the co leadership around two thousand. I would say two thousand six. Uh, two thousand and seven. and you know, we don't recommend people to get married uh, in the, in the, the coalition model, right? that that's just an added. you know when we talked about um our board just said, can you just become the you know co uh, co-director? And I was pretty happy at where i where I was. I think the the big, you know the the other challenge that just nonprofits and just the the work environment that, you know, permeates in corporate America or nonprofit is this check on ego and your public profile. And, you know, for us, we never had that. We've um, we've always deferred to nobody, either one of us not necessarily like, oh, you should do this because you're better at that. It's always, um, it's very process oriented. So when we, uh, the board kept pushing me to become you know, a co-director. Even before I actually became the co-director, but I was pretty happy at where I was because we come at it very from a perspective of collectively we could be better together. Than uh, that, I don't need a title. That it's the work that really brings joy and and rewards. And this, so many ways, the you know our, our approach to this work is really um, you know when when actually it was much harder. To become a co-director, then getting married. Getting married was like, oh yeah, we're directors or co-director. Getting married just like it's just another step to like doing what we already do well. But one thing became pretty obvious because I was talking to this older organizer that organized during some bad times, the Olinsky model, which we (laughs) got away with and pushed out um, many years before that. And he said, you know, being a co-director, you already all the elements that you do to run an organization as co-facilitators, co-directors, you're gonna have a successful marriage because in many ways you're already doing all the basics of what you need to do in being successful in a partnership. So, um, I mean, it didn't start off like that. I have very like, in the very, when I first met her, I'm like, oh, there's this woman that's coming from Manhattan, from New York City, which. I don't like because New York gets all the credit that Chicago should get, so I would had exactly. a little bit of concerns. But <laughs> man, it's been a joy. Um, it's been a real joy. And the thing that we also the additional thing that we notice is that the complementary her strengths are my weaknesses, and my her strengths and my strengths are her challenges. And the the duality of us talking through that and being honest about that. The honesty that, that those conversations come to you know, um, obviously, we're married, conversations never stop, so that's the challenge that we face. That's why a daughter doesn't want to become a co director or organizing, like, she doesn't want to work that hard.
0: <laughs> All right, that's great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about we're going to take a, a quick break in, 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 in just a moment, but I'd love to hear, and this is really opening up this to any of you. What are some of the successes that you've already noticed or experienced in this model? So I know that for Kate and Julia, it's been, has it been six months? Four Not months, even. Right? Yeah. Four <laughs> months. And what, you, what are you noticing um, even at this early stage, anything that you would point to as a, as a success?
5: Yeah, well, I, I'll share a, a, a couple things if, if, if that's okay. Um, and I think uh, one is just uh, the ability to have a thought partner. All the time has been really important and a and a benefit. We used each other that way often, but but to have that in 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 a, in a more formalized way, as as you mentioned, being at the top is lonely, and so to have that built in is really wonderful. Um, we've really been able to speed up decision making, as Kate referenced earlier. We we created more room at the table by modeling this collaborative uh, partnership. And so we now have a leadership council of our leaders in the firm and we bring things to that group. We have a conversation and then the decision is made in, in, in much more significant, um, rapid fashion than we had been known for previously at our firm. Uh, but I'll share a rather dramatic example as well. We started this process, uh, as, as Kate said, a year ago, and then in April I was diagnosed with breast cancer. and. Um, to be able to not only hold my job, uh, but be allowed to continue to do my job, to have a partner, to know that I wasn't holding the firm back, um, to know that decisions were moving forward, um, and then to be able to come out the other side, um, get some hair, and uh, be co-president <laughs> is, um, is really a powerful model for showing how you can take care of your employees uh, and the company all at the same time. So that's a rather extreme example, but uh, one I'm pretty grateful for and proud of.
0: But realistic and how you can take care of yourself, right? So if we haven't learned anything, right, during this uh, time during the pandemic is that, of course, self-care, which we talk about somewhat nonchalantly and we throw it around is it's real. It's real and it must happen. And uh, that is an incredibly powerful example. And I really appreciate you sharing it. Sean, what would you say have been some of the challenges of being doing uh, co-directorship.
1: Yeah, well, it's great to hear Julia talk about like decision-making accelerating through the shared leadership model. I think that that absolutely can happen and the opposite can also happen. Um, And I think even when it's a little, when we're a little slower in making decisions, I think that what is the added benefit is that we make better decisions, right? Because like if we're slower in making decisions because Francis and I are having differing views and working through that disagreement, debating the ideas or the reasons we think different things um, is just really useful. Um, And I know that that can sometimes make staff, we supervise a little uncomfortable. Like they're not sure how to feel about like the two people at the top of the hierarchy having differing views. Um, But, you know, I I do think that it's part of the, I hope that it becomes part of like the culture in more organizations that we can debate and have disagreement. And, you know, it's, I think for me, it's like that those years as an organizer, like debating campaign strategy was like constant, you know, and the fun part oftentimes of the job. So I don't shy away from that. But and obviously, Frances doesn't either. She's a New Yorker. Um, But, um, you know, I do recognize the ways that that can sometimes feel frustrating uh, for staff. But I do have faith that it leads us to make better decisions as an organization.
0: I absolutely agree. Um, So we heard a couple of some of the, I would say, um, reasons why it works from Raul. What would you say is a challenge or success, Jenny, in terms of having this leadership model?
2: Yeah, I would say, picking up on what Sean said, when we first became co-directors, I remember um, a director of another organization was kind of horrified. And she was just like, well, what are you going to do if you don't agree? And because it was very much like, well, what if you basically, what if you lose an argument? (laughs) And you don't get to do what you want to do. And it really struck me because um, it was from a very kind of individualistic perspective, which is the opposite of the culture that we really um, had been striving to build within the organization. And so um, I think, you know, one of the um, successes and challenges as a pair is that it does Take a lot of patience, right? Because you are continually working through things. And as Raul said, we each bring different assets and strengths and our own challenges to the work. But um, I think we've found too that um, it does result in, you know, both broader ownership within our organization because we go through a process that also extends beyond ourselves. Um, and it leads to what we believe are, you know, better, stronger decisions in the end. And I think going back to the, the culture piece too, um, Raul and I recently got a text from one of the mothers that we work with through our organizing, and you know she just sent this really powerful reflection, and she was just like, um, her words were so powerful. She said, you know, I feel like I'm living my dream because of again the culture of shared leadership organizationally and in our communities. She was able to see the tremendous role that she played throughout the pandemic in helping to stabilize housing for other families and helping to change policies. You know, that folks were coming up to her, you know, recognizing, you know, the work that she had done. So I think that's also just a success of the broader culture building is that folks have the opportunity more broadly to see themselves um, in their leadership roles
0: wonderful and you mentioned culture right something that we're talking a lot about these days we could do a whole nother podcast on that Um, however we're going to take a brief break and when we come back we want to talk about what advice would you give to an organization considering a co-leadership model you're listening to gathering ground i'm mary morton and we're back in a moment Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on Gathering Ground. We want to hear from you. If you have any questions about your work in nonprofits or any of the topics that we've covered here on Gathering Ground, send them on in. Send them to Mary at Gathering Ground Podcast.com. That's Mary at Gathering Ground Podcast, all one word.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to Gathering Ground, everyone. We are talking with leaders who have moved into a co-leadership model. We're talking with uh, folks from Campbell & Company, from Communities United, and from Building Movement Project. And what we're going to do now is talk about the advice that you would give an organization that's thinking about a co-leadership model. Why don't we start with Campbell & Company? What kind of advice, Kate, would you suggest What kind of uh, steps would you suggest that someone take um, if they're considering this model?
4: Well, I think uh, uh, as Jenny and Raul have demonstrated, getting married is obviously step one. (laughs) Uh, But Julia and I are uh, not gonna do that. That's the spoiler alert uh, from Camel and Company. Um, But uh, in in truth, I think we have learned a lot about um, what, Makes our partnership work, and and what we would just encourage people to explore with uh, their potential uh, partners in this regard. I think, as everyone has referred to, and you know, not a huge surprise, but it is really worth I think um, underscoring that uh, a co-presidency, co-director partnership um, really has to be based in a deep well of trust. I mean, you just have to be able to start from a place of uh, trusting that your partner will challenge you, will also have your back, will step in for you, will um, you know ask hard questions. But I think that the trust thing is huge. And as Julia said, one of the things that made this easy for us to get our minds around is that um, we share so many uh values and goals you know personally and professionally and per- professionally just about like why we do this work um what, you know we, we come at it from different places and the reasons why we get out of bed every morning and do this are very similar i think the second thing which some um jenny and Raul and and sean talked about is really and and our consultant was like this is the first thing he said to us is that if you're going to do this you have to be very clear with each other up front how you are going to resolve your differences, come to agreement, and when you can't come to agreement, like what's going to happen? You know, if you have an important decision to make that, um, as some people refer to, as kind of below the waterline of your business, meaning that if you make the wrong decision, the, sink, you know, the ship could sink. Um, how are you going to make that decision? So we've, we've talked a lot about that. Um, Obviously, being clear about your relative roles and responsibilities is is essential. And I think we're clear about that. And I think at least for the next year, we're going to have to talk with our colleagues about that on an ongoing basis, not only to ensure that the way we see things is working well for people, but if it's not that we get that feedback loop and we can make adjustments along the way. And then I think just a credo that we try to live by is always assuming best intent, and that is for us I think a real cornerstone. So those are a couple things that um, I, I would encourage people to explore with their
0: potential partners in this regard. Sean, what would you say to an organization considering a co leadership model?
1: I'd encourage the organization to consider what uh, they're trying to address or solve by moving to a shared leadership model. And the reason I would encourage an organization to pause it is not because of like any warning, but because I wanna make sure that organizations are matching the structural intervention to the whatever the sort of organizational um, uh, issue is that they're trying to address. And because I think there are a lot of benefits to shared leadership. And I also think that it sort of feels like it's becoming like fad-ish. Um, and so I'm seeing organizations sort of assume that like, okay, we wanna be current as an organization. And so we're gonna hire a co-director or we're gonna hire two co-directors as the way to address the, you know, departure of an exiting leader. Um, and, you know, I think that structural fix may not always be matched to what the organization is grappling with. Uh, And so that's why I would just encourage organizations to pause and think. Okay, pause and think. Raul, what would you suggest to um,
0: an organization considering co-leadership?
3: Just in terms of the follow-up from what Sean said, I think the understanding kind of where you are in the cycle of the organization um, in terms of, um, I would say that succession planning is a key aspect of it. There's so many benefits out of the, you know, co-leadership model. In many ways, I really see the future of organizations' response, right? Like, I mean, if you think of the pandemic, I think having confusion in leadership um, by, you know, the there's... There's just the the vetting of this critical decision making and, and the life of an organization is sometimes much much more crucial than others, right? So it all depends on like the function of the organization's mission, but if it's if it, you know, from my perspective, we're on the ground. If it's critical where the lives of people are impacted based on decisions, um, you, you know, it should be considered because you know. I think Sean mentioned earlier, decisions are just vetted thoughtfully, um, and you respond quicker, right? So those just those two mechanisms by which to respond to critical um, needs is, is I think, many ways. My you know, my daughter was she's being graded. Um, at, the teachers put her put her in a in a group setting with another um, with another student, and um, some of the parents were complaining about that, that they're gonna get graded based on the partnership. And we're like, that's perfect, co-leadership, like that's that's the future of how we respond to things, that, that things are much more collectively um, you know, vetted. And some parents were upset and, and I'm thinking, haven't we learned anything from what happened in the last couple of years? So I, I think to Sean's point, I think definitely should think about the the, the life cycle of the organization. Its mission, um, but you know, this is in many ways, I think, the the response that you know organizations need to, based on you know their their clients or their who you know who they're serving.
0: Julia, what has been the response from your colleagues across various industries, other consulting firms? What's what's been the response to to um, the announcement uh, that was made several months ago about the co leadership model?
5: Yeah, I think um, our colleagues in the firm, I think again, it was a why co-presidency? And then as they saw Kate and I share the information, I think it, I think it made sense to them almost faster than it made sense to us uh, when the consultant brought it because we, we had worked through so many pieces of it and again, um, are, are very comfortable with that partnership. We were so pleasantly surprised. Um, and I'll speak for myself, pleasantly surprised about um, hearing from others in the industry about how much they really appreciated not only seeing the collaborative leadership model, but seeing it with two women um, in particular, that, that, that seeing two women who could be with each other, support each other, lead together um, and create room at the table for others. Um, just really seemed a very good model for the work that we're doing. Um, So we're really happy to hear that. Wonderful.
0: And Jenny, what's been the reaction or what was the reaction as, I'm just going to say funders, right? Got to know the organization, realized that uh, not only were you going to be co-leaders, but that you were also married. What What was the reaction? What kind of questions did you get?
2: You know, it's funny because the the first uh, kind of group of folks we were worried about was our board. We were like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to tell our board that we're getting married? (laughs) So we went to them and I was so nervous about it. You know, this is like our strength weakness thing. I was super nervous and Raul was like super cool about it. (laughs) But um, when we went in, because they had known us uh, for so long, they were so excited. So I think that we were really pleasantly surprised kind of from that, getting over that first kind of piece of it. Um, And then with funders, um, you know, we've been really pleasantly kind of greeted with open arms from our funders. Um, So I think that we're very um, intentional about just in general relationships. Um, And so... You know, we um, when we work with our funders, they really and truly are you know partners that we connect with on a regular basis um, to discuss and strategize around the work. And, yeah, folks have seemed to really embrace co-leadership and um, also, you know, be very welcoming of both of us.
0: That's really great to hear. I remember when we were working together, I have to say I had no idea. I didn't know any I didn't know that you were married and it wasn't obvious to me at all, which I thought, you know, Mm -hmm. that's. It's working. Okay. (laughs) So, um, you know, believe it or not, we are going to be closing shortly. The time goes so quickly and certainly would love to talk to you so much longer. However, what I want to end with is just talking a little bit about what you're looking forward to in 2022. And I want to start with you, Sean. Um, If you have not had an opportunity to check out Race to Lead. It is a report that we reference a lot in our work and certainly on this podcast. I wanna suggest that you do that. And I I think there may be some updates or some new information that you wanna share, Sean.
1: Yeah, so last week we uh, put out the latest report in the Race to Lead series, and it focused on the data we collected from survey respondents who were themselves already the executive director of their organization. And we titled the report, Trading Glass Ceilings for Glass Cliffs, because so much of what we heard in focus groups was leaders of color feeling like they had been hitting these glass ceilings as they were trying to move into executive leadership roles. But then once they got to that top job, uh, they were felt like they were being pushed over this glass cliff um, because oftentimes the data actually bore this out Uh, particularly for leaders of color who are taking over from a white predecessor. There are some different uh, challenges that they end up facing around uh, resistance to their leadership, funding, getting cut, things like that. So uh, that is the latest report. In terms of what else is coming, we are doing the Race to Lead survey again uh, this spring, summer. Uh, We're trying to keep to every three years' cadence. Um, but so look out for emails from BMP and many of our partners like the Morton Group. Happy to, uh, so um, so that happy to share. You fill off that survey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wonderful, yes, I, that would be wonderful. And I love that you continue to collect that data because it'll be interesting to see, right, um, as we've moved through the pandemic, what has changed in terms of leadership and, and really want to underscore your point about when organizations are bringing in their first person of color, how often Um, the person may not be set up for success. And that is really important to have the the professional development. Um, As you mentioned, sometimes funders wanna wait and see. And uh, so this is really good data. And I wanna encourage our listeners to check out Race to Lead. Um, Julia and Kate, um, I know that you have been on the DEIA journey, diversity, equity, inclusion and access journey for several years. Can you talk a little bit about some of those priorities, as well as anything else you'd like to share about what's coming up in twenty twenty two?
4: Yeah, and I think you know the thing we're we're most looking forward to is sort of just settling into this new way of um, of being and leading, and uh, and continuing to just make a lot of space for uh, learning and listening. The DEIA work that you referenced to is has just gotten terrific traction over. The last couple of years, and I would say that there are three really significant things that we're doing uh, in 2022 to take that work uh, even farther. Um, internally, we're taking uh, a, a really deep look at compensation equity within our firm. It's a question that you know comes up a lot in performance reviews and the hiring process, and, and all sorts of places. So. We're working with a compensation consultant to do a top-to-bottom uh, comprehensive review benchmarking and to come back to us um, with recommendations. We're also uh, working on um, building out our learning and development plan for every single person uh, in the organization no matter what uh, you know seat you're sitting in and that work should be done in the next couple of months and then will lead to I think a whole host of amazing opportunities for Julia and me and, and our colleagues across the firm. And then we've just uh, are in the process of launching our first ever, if you can believe it, employee resource groups. And we have three groups that are um, getting up and running one for um, uh, BIPOC uh, employees, one for LGBTQ employees, and one for um, caregivers and guardians uh, and there's just a lot of real positive response and energy around that. I think externally, and I referred to this earlier, where we are gonna be doing um, a lot of deep work in thinking about how our methodologies, the way we go about doing our consulting work can be more informed by DEIA practices. So just you know, from the, our, how we engage people in focus groups to um, developing case statements, approaching things from an asset-based mindset, uh, how we think about the use of data and, you know, surveys and all sorts of things that we have just done, uh, you know, for years, taking um, a fresh and deep look at that and and also uh, launching the second phase of our pro bono partnership program, Equity Partners, which is focused on um, bringing our services alongside uh, smaller organizations that are led by people of colors and working in the racial justice and racial equity space. So there's a lot on the table. A lot and going super on. Pu- super pumped, and it's going uh, to be a great year.
0: <laughs> it sounds <laughs> really great very year. exciting, and I love the pro bono piece. We're doing our first sort of grant to a smaller nonprofit as well this year and taking them through the whole assessment and knowledge-building opportunity. Fantastic and we'll, we'll start to uh, help them write their action plan. Um, again, smaller organizations that we've gotten you know, larger over the years that it, it just doesn't make sense for them necessarily to work with us, but we would, we're happy to be able to provide those uh, services. We're working with a group in Chicago called Chicago Debates. Um, That's so great. Yeah, so Julia, what, what makes you hopeful about the work and, and the communities in which you work?
5: Uh, you know what makes me hopeful uh, is, is is the people, uh, the people both within our firm. We've hired twenty new people uh, in the in the past year um, to come on and 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 help us think differently in our firm, work differently in our firm. Um, they just bring uh, so much. Uh, uh, thinking from different backgrounds, um, different spaces, different talents, some are, 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 are data magicians, uh, some are communication experts, some are coming from the front lines um, on fundraising. Um, but also our partnerships with our clients. Um, We're working with clients who are thinking differently, who are willing to approach their fundraising differently. So to work with someone doing a campaign study and, and ensuring that we're doing a community assessment of their client base at the same time um, and being able to embrace that um, together. So I just, that, that work just makes me so hopeful when, when the noise on social media and, in, in other spaces of my life is is not as uplifting in this work um you think that we really you, can make a difference and, and i'm excited to be partnered with the people who are making a difference
0: wonderful that's that's very exciting and raul and jenny what's on tap for communities united what would you like to share with us
3: about your plans for 2022 raul you want to start well the plans for 2022 are as ambitious as ever but um i think what we've definitely centered around this notion of you know when (laughs) i had this dream of possibly not working and being a husband that could stay at home and just you know do the chores i was like pretty excited about putting that proposition in front of my partner and then the pandemic happened and they realized i that's the last place i want to work with you know like I I love people and I think our community has realized that more than ever, we need each other in person, not through a screen, and so we really are looking forward to, um, you know, knock on wood that we're moving things back slowly over to in person community town halls, but this um, really breakthrough promise of our model. You know, Mary took us through one phase where we changed our name because of the the growth of the organization. And now the growth of the organization is um, to the point where we're going deep in terms of our healing, uh, um, what we call healing through justice, which is how can our city and our members in our community, particularly communities of color, drive healing that is not clinical? Because the notion of America driving the clinical interventions is very clear that it's driven by institutions you know drug companies and what have you for us is really the opposite how can we flip that and how can we lead and push for community healing with the resources and that's many you know that's kind of our model that has been embraced in many ways by a number of hospitals and so we're kind of looking at that as a breakthrough for 2022. With our survivors leading that work, so we're kind of super excited with that uh, for this year, and to actually meet in person.
0: <laughs> yes, meeting in person. I know people are anxious to get back to that, and, and I I am as well. And I would also say, isn't it amazing what we've accomplished while we've met virtually? Who would have thought? I mean, I don't. I mean, of course, you um, at Campbell and Company do executive searches as we do. And we've done all of our executive searches virtually. I mean, all over the country. In some cases, we facilitated the uh, candidates meeting with our client partner without us being there because things changed so quickly that we couldn't get to the, the location fast enough, really, to, you know, keep things moving. So I think it's one of those cases where there, there is a will, there is definitely a way, right? And and Jenny, what makes you hopeful about uh, the year ahead?
2: I think all the things that roll laid out in terms of the work. And I think what makes me hopeful is just, you know, over the past a couple of years and through, you know, our healing through justice approach, what we just hear over and over again is the purpose that we're able to find in this work, um, the purpose that we find in coming together to create change, the purpose that we are able to find in, you know, building these connections with others through our lived experience. It's healing to the point where it just fuels us um, and it fuels our desire to connect with more and more people. And we hear that from our young people that when they're involved, they just have this innate desire to get others involved because they want them to experience the same thing. And then it's this beautiful ripple effect and that can't help but make me hopeful because um, it's a beautiful process to see.
0: So their compassion is absolutely contagious. Right? Yeah. They're excited and other people tap into that. That's that's wonderful. And as I often say, if I didn't believe that people fundamentally have the ability to change, I, I couldn't do this work either. I, I have to believe that. I have to keep that in mind. Um, some really great ideas and strategies to think about co-leadership, You know, whether it's trust. We often talk about our work, uh, particularly around racial equity and diversity, equity, and inclusion moving forward at the speed of trust with our client partners that we have to have trust. It's really important in your co-leadership model as well. Shared values, uh, what particular life cycle are you at in your organizational development? And taking taking a moment, as Sean said, to pause and think about this opportunity at this moment. Is it the right thing for you to do? Really great ideas, wonderful strategies. It has been lovely uh, having this opportunity to talk with all of you. And um, we're gonna do it again. I, I just had this feeling we're going to do this again. And uh, I'm, we'll look forward to that very, very much. So you've been listening to Gathering Ground. Uh, we're going to have some resources uh, from this conversation available on our website. And I'm Mary Morton, until next time.